0: an organization of Union Army veterans began to promote Decoration Day to honor those who gave their lives in preservation of the Union. Congressman at the time, James Garfield, said on the first observance of Decoration Day at Arlington National Cemetery, he said, We do not know one promise these men made, one pledge they gave, one word they spoke, But we do know they summed up and perfected by one supreme act the highest virtues of men and citizens. For love of country, they accepted death and thus resolved all doubts and made immortal their patriotism and their virtue. In the years following, more and more cities and states began to observe Decoration Day, and in 1938, the federal government made it a national holiday. Of course, after World War II, it was renamed Memorial Day and expanded to remember all of the nation's fallen soldiers. Memorial Day is so much more than just the unofficial start to summer. It's more than just a day to buy furniture or grill hamburgers in the backyard. We don't necessarily celebrate Memorial Day as much as we observe it in solemn remembrance. As one quote says... This is the day we pay homage to all those who didn't come home. This is not Veterans Day. It's not a celebration. It is a day of solemn contemplation over the cost of freedom. And so I think it's fitting that today we look at what the Baptist faith and message has to say about peace and war. Just as we don't celebrate Memorial Day, but should observe it in solemn contemplation as Christians, we shouldn't celebrate war. We acknowledge it's necessary sometimes. We may even support a war or fight in a war. And we certainly support and honor and pray for those soldiers and their families who fight. But we do all of this in the solemn recognition of the cost of freedom. So let's look at what the Baptist faith and message says about peace and war. It's on the back of your order of worship if you want to follow along. It is the duty of Christians... To seek peace with all men on principles of righteousness. In accordance with the Spirit and teachings of Christ, they should do all in their power to put an end to war. The true remedy for the war spirit is the gospel of our Lord. The supreme need of the world is the acceptance of His teachings in all the affairs of men and nations and the practical application of His law of love. Christian people throughout the world should pray for the reign. Of the Prince of Peace. I think that the believer's relationship with and responsibility to the nation in which they live is never more difficult than when it comes to this idea of war. We wrestle with questions like Is war ever justified? If Christ calls us to be peacemakers, is it right for us to take up arms to defend ourselves, our families, our country? And if so, what principles guide us in war and in self-defense? Now, it's important whenever we approach a, a difficult ethical issue like this that we do it from a biblical worldview. And we have to beware of proof texting. Proof texting is where you take a text out of context and use it to justify a predetermined position that you already hold. So it's where you get the Bible to say what you wanted to say, to agree with your position rather than taking your position to the Bible to see what the Bible has to say. We have to be careful of that because if we're to correctly handle the word of truth as workers who need not be ashamed, then we have to take the totality of Scripture into account. What does the Bible teach about peace and war? You've already heard our New Testament reading in Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 5 about why and how God has established governments and our responsibility to them. Let's look a few verses earlier at Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 17. Paul writes, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. I think the first point we have to make, and and it's been sung about, it's been talked about, it's what Paul is writing about here, and that's that God's first priority is always peace. So that's your first of two fill-in-the-blanks. Again, keeping it simple this morning. We don't have a screen. God's priority is peace. I don't think there's any doubt when you read the Bible that God's preference is for peace. Wars and conflicts and and any kind of violence or killing, we know these are not a part of God's original plan for His world. These things exist because of sin. The Bible is clear that God seeks peace and so should we as His people. Which is why the opening statement of the Baptist faith, the message says it is the duty of Christians to seek peace with all men on principles of righteousness, and that we should do all in our power to put an end to war. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called the sons of God. A few verses later, in verses 38 and 39 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And, as we just read in Romans twelve eighteen, if possible on your part, live at peace with everyone. Now, if we're going to proof text these things and not take the totality of Scripture, it'd be very easy for us to come away from this with an attitude of pacifism. And there are Christians that hold to this idea of pacifism. Now, pacifism is a total rejection of all armed conflict, regardless of cause or condition. And if a pacifist is going to be consistent, they can't just be against aggressive offensive war. They also have to be against defensive war. They must also be against personal defense or even law enforcement using force to protect the innocent. In fact, Albert Dietrich, a a big-time pacifist activist, wrote this. There are perhaps many causes worth dying for, but to me, certainly there are none worth killing for. Now, on the surface, that can sound noble. But as Dr. Albert Moeller explains, the moral failure of pacifism is found in its deadly naivete, not in its abhorrence of violence. In reality, the world is a violent place where humans with evil intent will make war on others. In such a world, respect for human life sometimes requires the taking of human life. That tragic fact is as clearly revealed in history as any other and far more than most. He concludes pacifism fails to keep the peace against those who would take it. We saw this kind of evil on display this past week in Uvalde, Texas, where a monster mercil- 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 mercilessly took the lives of 19 children and two teachers. And I think that we all can agree that that border patrol agent who went in there and used deadly force to stop him is a hero. Would Jesus rather have left that monster unchecked in that school to kill everybody? The pacifist would argue yes. The pacifist would argue that violence only ever begets more violence and so he does nothing to resist evil. But the truth is that there is a superior violence that can stop criminal violence. Some violence can stop violence. Or as, as we like to say, a good guy with a gun can stop a bad guy with a gun. If we allow evil to go unchecked and unopposed, it's always the innocent that pay the price. Or someone else once said, evil prospers when the good do nothing. In his book, Christian Ethics, and it's about this big, it's a huge book, theologian Wayne Grudem wrote, the logic of pacifism would lead ultimately to a total surrender to the evilest of governments, which would stop at nothing to use their power to oppress others. Can you imagine a world in which Adolf Hitler was unopposed? Or what if we sat back as a world and did nothing to stop Russia from exterminating the Ukrainian people. Do you think Putin would stop with Ukraine? Do you think China would stop with Taiwan? While naive pacifism is one extreme that uses the Bible to justify doing nothing in the face of evil, the other extreme is maybe even more sidious. And that's using the Bible to justify any war as being under the banner of God. And I think probably one of the greatest examples of this in history are the Crusades. Under the auspices of fighting a holy war, the Pope had his subjects take up arms to recapture the Holy Land in the name of Christ. And if you're familiar with the history of the Crusades, you know that countless atrocities were committed under the banner of the cross of Christ. One such example, on July the 14th, 1099, a crusader army entered the city of Jerusalem and began to massacre every man, woman, and child. One witness said, No one has ever seen or heard of such a slaughter of pagans, for they were burned on pyres like pyramids, and no one save God knows how many there were. Another witness said that the bodies were piled high on the temple mount and that the streets flowed with rivers of blood. There are so many horrific stories from the Crusades, each one of them a stain on Christian witnesses to this day in the Middle East. And I think it goes without saying that such acts are never the will of God and cannot be justified by Scripture. We as Christians are called to plead our case with the lost. We advance the gospel on our knees sharing the truth and love of Jesus Christ. The gospel is never advanced by force. So if pacifism is naive at best, and if militant crusading is evil, can Christians ever justify going to war? If God's priority is peace, and it is. If we are called to be makers of peace, and we are. If we are called to strive to live at peace with others as best we can, is war ever necessary in God's eyes? And this brings us to my second point, and that is the principles of just war. The principles of just war. Christian ethics seeks to address moral issues, with, again, with the, with the totality of Scripture. Scripture. So as we read the totality of the Bible, the Bible neither condemns nor condones war in general. Right? The Bible's view on this issue is nuanced. It's complex. It must be taken in context. We are neither commanded to take up arms for any given cause, nor are we restricted from taking up arms in a particular situation. So if we use the whole counsel of God's Word... A biblical case and guidance can be developed for the principles of just war. St. Augustine was the first to develop this theory, which basically says that war or any kind of armed conflict is acceptable only under certain conditions. And in the century since, others have built on uh, Augustine's work to develop a complex ethic about war. And Wayne Grudem summarizes these nicely in The Christian Ethics, and I've taken them from there to share with us today. The first principle is just cause. Is the reason for going to war a morally right cause? Like the defense of a nation, the protection of the innocent. Any war that is aggressive and that just goes out to gain wealth and power is, of course, not justified. I think we would say that Putin's uh, attack of Ukraine is unjustified. Is it a just cause? The second principle is competent authority. Has the war been declared by those of proper authority within the nation? Now, our United States Constitution set itself up so that Congress has to declare war. Our founders didn't want any one president or any one state committing the whole nation to war. They wanted us to have to deliberate within our legislative body, and weigh the options and the consequences of going to war. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and talk about a common mistake made by those who do argue for pacifism. And what they do is they apply Jesus' teachings about individual conduct to a civil government. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount that I read a minute ago, Jesus says that we're to turn the other cheek. But that is in reference to interpersonal relationships. In Romans 13, which we've already heard, it tells us that God has clearly given governments the authority as his agents to bring his wrath on those who do evil. So we have to distinguish between our private duties and responsibilities and the public duties and responsibilities of the state. Those aren't, you can't necessarily apply Jesus' teachings one to the other. Grudem explains it like this, As a private individual, I may turn the other cheek when unjustly attacked. However, my responsibilities are quite different when I stand in the position of guardian of a third party. Loving my neighbor or enemy does not mean I must stand idly by as my child is kidnapped and murdered. I am to use whatever force is necessary to protect his or her life and safety. And he makes the argument that the government stands as that third party guardian for us, the citizens. So is it a just cause? Is it enacted by competent authority, by the state that has been given that authority by God? The next principle is comparative justice. Does the moral merit on our side clearly outweigh the moral argument on the other side? Both sides can claim that God is on their side. Both sides can use the Bible to try to justify their side. But a war is only just when one side can clearly demonstrate that theirs is the more just cause. Abraham Lincoln made this case in his second inaugural address. He said both sides, talk about the North and the South, the Confederacy and the Union, both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And each invokes his aid against the other. But here he makes his case for why the, the, the North's cause was more just. He says, It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. Is it comparative injustice? The next principle is right intention. Is the purpose of war to protect justice and righteousness? to obtain and restore a just peace. So, of course, going to war out of a sense of revenge or to humiliate another nation or to to rape and pillage and destroy, obviously those are not right intentions. I think one of the things that we can be proud of as a nation is that the ideal of the United States is to fight for freedom for the oppressed around the globe. G.K. Chesterton said, "...the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. When our country goes to war, we don't fight to conquer our enemy, but to bring peace and prosperity to others, to defend life and liberty at home. That's why we fight. That's a just cause. Another principle is the principle of last resort. Have all other reasonable means of resolving the conflict been exhausted? It's been said that war happens when language fails. Has diplomacy and negotiation and sanctions and any other nonviolent means been exhausted before committing boots to the ground? Another principle is the probability of success. Is there a reasonable expectation that the war can be won? Listen, it doesn't matter how just your cause may be. If you go into it knowing that you can't win it, is it just... To sacrifice those lives to a cause that can't be won? Jesus talked about counting the cost. That a king counts the cost before he sends his soldiers to war. Is there probability of success? Similar to that is the principle of proportionality of projected results. Will the good results that come from a victory in a war be significantly greater than the harm and the loss that comes with war? Any war necessarily has collateral damage. The destroying of cities, the taking of innocent life, the ruining of the countryside and the economy of that nation, not to mention the the strain and the loss of life on your nation and your country, the young people you're committing to battle, is the proportionality of those results, do they weigh against the costs and the consequences or not? And then the final principle is the principle of right spirit, is the war undertaken with great reluctance, and sorrow at the harm that will come rather than simply a delight in war. And so when you look back in history and you look back at the the Middle Ages, uh, especially in ancient times, there was this essence that, all right, it's spring, it's time for war. And young men wanted to be soldiers. They wanted to be in war because they wanted to go and they wanted to kill and they wanted to destroy. In the second book of his Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Two Towers, J.R.R. R. Tolkien writes, War must be while we defend our lives against the destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. If we're driven by the principle of love, we should never enter war eagerly, but always reluctantly and out of that painful necessity. Remember, Paul says in Romans 12, 18 that if at all possible, as much as you can help live at peace with other people, Will we know the problem is it's not always possible to live at peace with other people. We do live in a sinful world where there are evil people with whom peace is simply impossible. Would peace have been possible with Hitler? No, he feigned peace and then invaded Poland. There are some with whom... Peace is just not possible, which is why Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for every purpose under heaven, a time for war, and a time for peace. In Romans 13, Paul says that God establishes governments to carry the sword on His behalf. Now, that Greek word for sword can refer either to a sword carried by a soldier in battle or the sword carried by an executioner in carrying out the law. Well, we know that our own oath of office that people take in this country says that they are pledging themselves to protect and defend the Constitution and the country from enemies both foreign and domestic, right? So there is a time for the sword to be used in a domestic way to stop people from breaking the law, to stop people from murdering other people. But Romans 13 says that God has given governments to punish evildoers, not just at home, but also foreign. Would God have us not combat evil invaders that seek to destroy the lives of our citizens any more than He would have us to stop somebody from going into a school and doing harm? Listen, as Christians, our desire should never be to go to war because our our calling is to make peace as far as it is possible with us. But sometimes the only path to peace, tragically, is across a battlefield. And while that should never be our desire as citizens of the United States, it may be our duty, so far as the war is just. And when Christians do serve in the military, we should do so with distinction, with honor, as representatives of Jesus Christ in everything we say and do. Because the just war theory not only speaks of justice toward war, but justice in war. It also outlines rules of conduct, rules of engagement, rules of war that we should follow, things like proportionality of force, discriminating between combatants and non-combatants, avoidance of evil means like biological, chemical warfare, torture, and fighting in good faith. But even if we must fight a just war, even if we must take up arms at any point to defend ourselves or our families from those who would do us harm, we must always remember that even necessary violence is a sign and symptom of our sinful, fallen world. Our default posture, our goal, should always be the pathway to peace. Always. Which is why the Baptist Faith and Message ends saying the true remedy for the war spirit is the gospel of our Lord. The supreme need of the world is the acceptance of His teachings in all the affairs of men and nations and the practical application of His law of love. Christian people throughout the world should pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. The gospel is the answer to every human ill. Now, secularists would stop at that. Pluralists would say, well, all religions are the same, But the gospel of Jesus Christ is unique in both its claim and its power to transform people from sinners into saints. There's nothing else like the gospel of Jesus Christ. No other religion or philosophy or political party or ideology holds hope for humanity. Listen, no amount of laws can be passed to cure us of our sinfulness, right? No amount of debates and meetings of the United Nations will stop wars from happening in our world. No campaign promises can save us from evil. You can't legislate holiness or righteousness. Only Jesus, the Prince of Peace, can bring peace between God and humanity, between each other and among nations. Only Jesus can do that. We are made in God's image. Every human being has immeasurable worth and value. And Jesus calls us to love other people, to even lay down our lives for one another. But only Jesus can change a person from the inside out. No one else offers forgiveness of sins and the total transformation of the human heart but Jesus. And if people around the world would accept the gospel, would accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior... That would bring an, an end to war and strife. That would. As the Baptist Faith of Message says, the supreme need of the world is the acceptance of Jesus' teachings in all the affairs of men and nations and the practical application of His law of love. That's not just true on the national level. That's true in our churches, in our community, in our home, in our hearts. Can you imagine the difference it would make in this world if we would truly love one another the way Jesus loves us. Only when Jesus reigns in our hearts and lives is peace truly possible. Individually. As well as, as a community. And the way to bring that rule and reign, the only pathway to peace that will come is when the gospel is being preached to the ends of the world so that every tongue and nation and tribe will declare Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the pathway to peace. And the greatest thing that you and I can do to promote peace, to see an end to senseless killings in our country and an end to wars abroad is for us to pray, give, and go to make disciples of all nations. That's how we bring peace. When the Prince of Peace someday returns and sits on His glorious throne, and every tongue confesses, and every eye sees, and every knee bows, then our world will know the true, lasting, ultimate, and eternal peace. It comes from Jesus. As we heard in our Old Testament reading in Micah 4.3, He will settle disputes among many peoples. And provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. And until that day comes, when the Prince of Peace returns and restores all creation to that order of peace in which God created it, and all sickness and sin and disease is gone. And there's no more hate, no more fighting, no more war. Until that day, we must pray and work as much as possible to know Him and to share Him with others that they may experience that peace. We have to strive to be makers of peace. We have to strive to live at peace with others the best we can and when necessary, guided by the Word and Spirit of God, do all we can to resist evil to speak up for the voiceless, to defend the defenseless. Listen, being an agent of peace doesn't just mean we sit around and hold hands and sing kumbaya. It means that we do everything that God would have us do to defend peace, to work toward peace, to keep peace, to defend freedom, to free the oppressed, to declare freedom to the captive. And yes, as a nation, sometimes that means that we have to go to war to fight for peace. But what about you this morning? Do you have peace in your heart with God, or are you a captive? You know, there's an enemy who's more dangerous than any dictator. He's more ruthless than any tyrant. And Jesus Christ gave his life. He died upon the cross to set you free, to give you real peace, so that you could defect from the enemy's kingdom of darkness and become a citizen in the kingdom of God's life and light. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is He the Prince of Peace in your heart? You may be saying, David, I'm not at peace. I'm not at peace on the inside. I'm not at peace with God. I know that. If I were to die today, I can't tell you that I'd go to heaven. Today is the day that you can know. Not because of you, not because you deserve it, because none of us do, not because you're good, because none of us are, but because Jesus Christ shed His blood on Calvary's cross to purchase your redemption, to set you free. And He can come into your life, and He can give you that peace that passes all understanding. And He doesn't just make us at peace with God. He begins to work in our lives to help us to be at peace with others those broken relationships in our life, those people that we just can't seem to get along with, those people that we find hard to forgive or to seek forgiveness from. He helps us to be at peace with others. Do you know Jesus? I pray you will let the Prince of Peace rule in your heart and bring spiritual peace between you and God. You don't have to be at war with Him anymore. You don't have to be God's enemy. You can be His child. Maybe as a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that God would have you unite with this church as a place that understands the reality of this world that we're in and does all we can to fight and to pray and to work and to go and to share towards that ultimate peace that Jesus brings. We would love to have you unite with our church in that common cause. Maybe God has laid something else on your heart. This altar is open. You can come and pray. I'll be standing down front to receive you. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we know that we live in a sin-sick and broken world. We see it on the news every day. We see it in our own hearts, in our own lives. We know that there is no cure in ourselves. There's no cure in drugs and alcohol. There's no cure in sports and recreation. There's no cure in pouring ourselves into our work. There's certainly no cure in Washington, D.C. We need you. And if there's anyone here today that needs to come into that relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray they would do so right now. Father, we thank you for this church and for the work that it does to help advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, to support law enforcement in our community, to support and love on and pray for those men and women who do serve our country, to help defend peace around the world, to help to defend the freedom that we have. We honor them. We thank you for them. We pray for them, God, that you would bless them with success. And we pray, God, for our leaders, that you would always guide them. May they always and only ever engage when necessary in just war. God, save us from any inclinations of war for political gain, for wealth or power. God, we pray that you would guide our nation, heal our every flaw, make all success nobleness in every gain, divine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.